After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Welcome to the Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour. We are delighted to share with you Jack's innate common sense wisdom and his clear open heart. If you are interested in supporting Jack's podcast, go to BeHereNowNetwork.com slash Jack. Tag Team Dharma. Tag Team Dharma, but I have to find my tag. Wait, wait, wait. Okay. Works better if I turn it on. <laughs> we have such a good time if we do this. We, uh, we say to each other, let's talk about generally speaking. And you start, and then I'll continue, and then you'll continue, and then I'll continue, and we remind each other of things we want to say. And both of us are uh, heavy talkers. So that <laughs> you might have noticed that given an in, we carry on and it expands and we expand. So you <laughs> this is, this is really no. So thinking about what I wanted to say uh, and how I wanted to say it and what stories I wanted to, to tell you. I think I could start with this particular point. I've been really... Uh, uh, on a really sustained, excited uh, mind state for several weeks now, because I spent a week in Washington at, um, as, as a participant, as a uh, receiver of the College Chakra Initiation teachings that His Holiness the Dalai Lama was doing there. So it was, a, it was an extraordinary experience, 14,000 people in the Verizon Center. It's it's It's... A huge place. It's like Madison Square Garden. You know, they they have basketball there and rock concerts and and all of a sudden here it is full of people who have come to hear these ancient ancient teachings on spreading peace throughout the world and uh, working with one's own mind so that one is ready to make absolutely the dedication of one's life to a life of kindness and compassion, uh, what the Dalai Lama called uh, infinite altruism. He said what you need to have, actually, in order to be able to take the vow to devote yourself to the well-being of others, it was two things. You needed wisdom and a mind filled with altruism. And one of the things I, I said to Jack earlier today, is I said, I want to get around to making the point that wisdom and altruism are uh, so, not so, are more than just companion to things. They are really integral to each other. That when wisdom fills the mind 
altruism and looking out for the welfare of others is absolutely natural. Every time we ring this bell here, and it's been here for 10 years, every time we ring it, I think, thank you, Norman Fisher, who was abbot of Zen Center when this building was finished. And the bell is a gift from uh, Green Gold Zen Center. And I think of them every time I ring the bell, which is a lot of times in this room since 10 years ago. And I think about how the, uh, an act of kindness spreads out over time, over waves and waves, and those how many million hours of people sitting here? Two million. Two million people hours of people sitting in here and ding, enjoying the generosity of, of, of Zen Center. So when we talk about, uh, when I talk about uh, generosity, I mean not only generosity of stuff, but generosity of spirit, which for me is the biggest thing about generosity. Uh, it's, uh, it's easier, probably, to give stuff, to give away stuff, than it is to give away a long time held, firmly entrenched view. And I think what's called for on behalf of liberating our own minds from the constricting patterns, the negative patterns, the, um, the limitations that cause it to suffer, requires a kind of intuit, ultimate generosity of spirit. I want to tell you, um, I read this this morning. I want to tell you a little bit from uh, one more thing before I read it to you because I want to put it in position. Um, when I came home from uh, Washington and I was all excited about having been there, one of my colleagues here said to me, how was it? I said, it was great. She said, uh, did His Holiness say anything new? So I thought about it for a minute. And I said, no, he didn't say anything new, actually. What would there be new to say? You know, there are a few things that are true. Life is challenging. We make things worse when we struggle with what can't be changed. Uh, that when we focus on ourselves and a neediness in ourselves, I need things to be different. I don't like the way things are. Then we suffer when we look around and see other people and we notice that everybody needs something and we respond to them then we are freed from the, the limitations of our own self-interest and actually free to be happy in connection with other people. It's a very simple equation. Well, it's simple to say, but it's not so simple to do because one of the, for me, the most profoundly difficult things to do is to give up the feeling of enmity that develops when we've been hurt by somebody. Sometimes when I'm teaching, I say, you see this bottle of water? Imagine that it has an herb that's dissolved in it. It's an invisible herb. You can't see it. But it's a magic herb, and it, it, it does something to the water. So if you take a sip of this water, every grudge you have will disappear. <laughs> and then I say to people, okay, who wants a sip of water? <laughs> Thank you, dear. <laughs> Who wants a sip of water? And people think about it for a long time. <laughs> Nobody is running up that first second. They think about it. And people often ask, if I give up my grudges, 
who will I be? I think it's fairly simple. I'd be me without my grudges, and I'd be a, <laughs> and I'd be a whole lot better off from the small grudges to the big grudges. And there was a, I told you the part about, uh, you know, what the Thessalonians say, and I didn't say anything new, because it's a little funny, and I thought you'd laugh. But I actually thought there's another, there's a deeper meaning to that. In fact, we don't say anything new. We say the same thing over and over and over again in different permutations and combinations. Actually, when I'm teaching, I never say the beginning line, this is a Dharma talk called X, Y, Z, because it doesn't matter what it's called, because it's always about the same thing. We just call it something else, (laughs) because you can't call it the same thing every week. But it's all about the same exact thing, those same, those same few truths that are true through another lens, through another lens, through another lens. But it's all the same. And for me, the important thing in that it's fine that it's the same is that there's a difference between knowledge and wisdom. I think about knowledge as facts. You learn about things. And it accumulates. You could have a little bit of facts, and then more facts that could accumulate, like a big pile of facts. And I don't think that uh, that the kinds of uh, wisdom that we are saying around accumulates as facts. I think it integrates into the mind in a way that's transformative, so that these eyes and these ears and this body and this personality that meet the world meet the world differently as the wisdom that we hear over and over again penetrates through. This morning, I read um, A New Yorker of a few weeks ago. I've been waiting to read it. If you want to look for it, it's the July 11th New Yorker. And there's a story about the cyclists who are cycling in the tour of Rwanda. You think about it, in the tour of Rwanda. The Rwanda, the terrible time, was 1994. And here we are in 2011, a country still just trying to struggle out of such a terrible cataclysmic event with Hutus and Tutsis in terrible conflict with each other, terrible carnage. And this story in The New Yorker starts with um, a cyclist and the story of his life. He was a young boy at the time. This was in the time of the tragedy. And his family was killed. And one way or another, he grew up orphaned and finding people who could take care of him. And he became a... uh, a, um, He worked in the potato fields, picking up bits of potato that the reapers had left over, and he sold his bits. And then he got, after a while, he had enough bits to be able to uh, finally buy a bicycle. It took him a long time. He'd once seen a bicycle in his life, and he bought a one-speed bicycle. But with the one-speed Chinese-made bicycle, he could pedal more potatoes on the back of his bicycle, and then he got a regular work with a regular picking team, so he wasn't only taking the gleanings. And he began to ride that bicycle with his potatoes long distances every day and developed tremendous stamina. And the cyclists who had, the few cyclists who were cycling in Rwanda 
would come by sometime on a training route, and there are descriptions of him of seeing them coming and then revving up and trying to keep up with him. If you imagine the cyclists on real racing bikes, and here he is on his one-speed Chinese-made bike pulling potatoes behind him on his route and pedaling so furiously that sometimes I could keep up with him a little bit that keeps up. And finally, after a few years, the coach, well, actually a year after he, the coach of the cyclist notices this furious peddler on his bike and they give him a real bike. And then very soon, by two, 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 three years after he gets his first bicycle, he's bicycling with the Tour de Rwanda as a real cyclist. And uh, so it talks about him, it talks about other people, talks about the cyclists together who are all his age, young adults in their mid-twenties who were alive but young at the time of the crisis. And he said they don't talk about who's a Hutu and who's a Tutsi. They kind of know about each other because if you say, where do you come from, then you know. But they don't ask each other, where do you come from? In a studied way, he said, because they don't want to know. They say, together what we think about is we're just cyclists. We're on the Rwanda cycling team. We don't want to know who, whether you're this or that. And I think to myself, what an extraordinary piece of wisdom about not clogging up the mind with identities that are derisive and that make people divisive and make people apart. We're just cyclists on the team. And the people who come from the, 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 the uh, trainer is a man who was a, a cycle trainer in the United States who had troubles in his life and actually, in fact, did some fairly serious um, incorrect things that he really uh, was taken to law about. And he actually was also needing to have a new life and a new identity and wasn't sure why he was going to Rwanda, but he went to Rwanda. He got involved. Another man got involved. One of, and here they are talking to each other. And uh, Tom and Jack, who are the trainers working with the team, he said Tom, when he came, was astonished to find that the, culture, the country felt alive with belief in a better future. For Rwandas, this is a line that I really wanted you to hear. For Rwandans, existence meant forgiveness. That's it. We are not alive until we can forgive. A part of our heart and mind is mortgaged. We're not really fully alive. For Rwandans, existence meant forgiveness, or at least the capacity to endure the unforgivable. There was no choice. That's a remarkable thing, to endure the unforgivable, because they have endured the unforgivable. One of them says at one point, I have to cycle every day. He said, if I don't cycle for two or three days running, I get terrible nightmares and terrible headaches again. If I cycle, I don't have them. So you might think, well, he's running away from the truth. He, the, the truth is not something that his mind can hold. Whose mind can hold it? I think to myself, I think it's wonderful that he can do that until he has a new identity with his team and of himself. Endure the unendurable. It's an amazing thing to do. 
think about what would be if each of us could never have another grudge. We, I'm sure, I hope, nobody has anything near as horrendous to think about in their personal life as, as the example that I just gave. But to be able to say, I have no enmity in my mind at all. There's a line in one of the metta chants, one of the loving kindness chants, that begins, may I be free of enmity and danger. And when I first learned it years ago, I imagined it meant, may I be free of people coming after me, you know, the enemies coming after me and having danger. And I soon realized that free of enmity means, may I not have it in me. And the danger that I would be in, if I had it in me, of having less than a full heart available to me. I think actually we're talking about not less than everything in terms of the transformation of the mind and heart. And that's what we're dedicated to here. What the Buddha said it was is that it was possible. Jack often says, now I give it back to you, that the Buddha said, I wouldn't give you this to do if it wasn't possible. Thank you. So here's um, some of the Buddha's words. Um, and you can listen to them really as, a, as an instruction um, and a kind of remarkable instruction. And then I'll add some things to it, which raises the, the questions that it does for us as human beings. Here we come and sit and meditate and try to quiet the mind and open the heart. And as you sit, also the unfinished business of your life comes. You start to get mindful and present and things that are held in your body start to release or the grudges or the unfinished things or the sadness or the longing. Um, all those things appear as, as does the love that maybe you haven't expressed or the creativity. All that we hold in ourselves starts to open up as we sit. And, and we have, it turns out, within us the, the same 10,000 joys and sorrows that the world is composed of. And then what do we do with them? So here's the, here's the Buddha's instructions, and perhaps particularly important in times when the world as it is now seems to be going through the kind of difficulties and alarm that's happening. Maybe now it's the financial market, but it's not just that. It's continuing warfare and racism and environmental destruction, and we all know this. And we know that the root isn't uh, more computers and that it's not, even though they're useful, and it's not scientific advancement and biotechnology. And that alone can never do it. Um, it really requires a transformation of the human heart because how we use those computers or those skills is really what the bottom line is. And if we want to affect the racism and the wars and the environment, um, it's going to require a change of human consciousness, and more than anything, it's demanded of us now. So the Buddha's words are these. Live in joy, that's the first line, an invitation. Live in joy, in love, even among those who hate. Live in joy, in health, even among the afflicted. Live in joy, in peace, even among the troubled. Look within be still, which is the training of meditation, free from fears and attachments. Know the sweet joy of the way for yourself. So this is a kind of radical recipe 
that says to you, being born, incarnated in this human body on this earth that has an ocean of tears and almost unbearable beauty. It's the mixture of amazement and mystery and beauty and sorrow that we know human incarnation has. Live in joy and love even among those who hate. Live in joy and health even among the afflicted. Live in joy and peace even among the troubled. Become, make of yourself a light. Become a beacon in yourself and do those practices that allow you to do this. Now, um, another great text from one of the most respected Zen ancestors um, begins this way. He says, the great way or the way of wisdom is not difficult for those who have no preferences. <laughs> there we go. I like to say maybe it's more subtly translated as for those who are not attached to their preferences. Because we do have preferences. Even the Buddha had preferences. But who, for those who don't cling to their preferences. When attachment and hatred are both absent, everything becomes clear and undisguised. Um, and then one more little verse from it toward the end. So it says, to see the world the way it is without, the way we, without being attached to the way we think it is supposed to be, this is actually the world as it is. And can we relate to this world with its tears and its beauty from the place of a, of a pure, peaceful heart? It says, to live in this realization, to come to the realization that this is the way the world is, and I have a choice of how I move through this world and what seeds I plant and what I bring to the consciousness of this world. To live in this realization is to be without anxiety about non-perfection. It's kind of a complicated sentence with its almost double negatives. To live in this realization is to be without anxiety about non-perfection because it's not perfect the way you think it should be. It's the way that it is. And that's how you get born into it. And if you want it to be perfect the way you'd imagine it, you're on the wrong planet, basically. You should try a different birth and see if it's something. And then, with a quiet mind and open heart, let your mind full of compassion and love pervade one quarter of the world and the second and the third and the fourth, the whole world above, below, around, everywhere, pervading with love, Filled thoughts and feelings and well wishes, abounding, sublime, beyond measure, free from enmity and fear, free from ill will. So these are instructions. Now, the question is, how do you do it? Um, so uh, some years ago, I was traveling around France and visited Chartres Cathedral. Um, and one of the things about going to Chartres where I'd never been is that Chartres has one of the great labyrinths of Europe that's been there for since the Middle Ages. And I've walked the labyrinth at Grace Cathedral. I thought, okay, goody, I'm going to get to Chartres and walk the labyrinth. Well, it turns out the labyrinth, which is in this magnificent cathedral, is mostly covered by folding chairs during the week. But one afternoon a week, they take the chairs away so people can walk the labyrinth. I got there on that afternoon. Thank you. Praise whoever it is, the Buddhists. So it's cool. I get to walk the labyrinth. Very spiritual, right? And I get there, and they're taking the chairs off. I just happen to luck out, if you will. And so I'm there, and I'm there with my family, and we're starting to walk the labyrinth, and other people are walking the labyrinth. 
And to walk a labyrinth, if you've never done it, you, you know, you walk back and forth slowly in this design for a long time and you get near the center like a tease and then you get pulled out again and you get closer and you get pulled out and finally you get to the center, um, like the journey of life. And so I'm walking it and feeling very spiritual and beautiful and there's 15 other people walking it and it feels like the music of the spheres. Here is, um, you know, Jupiter and Saturn and because everybody's in their line and their lane and you're all moving in this in this beautiful mandala headed toward the, the center. So it just felt great. At the same time, Chartres <laughs> is a big tourist place. And so there are those of us walking very piously and spiritually doing the labyrinth. And then there's a bunch of tourists, American tourists, German, Russian tourists with their cameras, their kids, or who just march right across the labyrinth while we're walking it, you know, and we're trying to be quiet and meditative and feel the thousands of years of pilgrims who've walked there. I am, anyway. And meanwhile, right in front of me is this guy with his cameras dragging his kid who's screaming, you know. So at first I became less charitable, let's say. (laughs) A little bit irritated. Or more. And then I continued to walk, and then at some point, because it did feel like the music of the spheres, at some point I thought to myself, oh, they're like comets. You know? <laughs> they're way out there in the edge of the galaxy, and once in a while they swoop in and pass the planets, and they go. And as soon as I made that little mental shift, we were all happy walking. <laughs> so there's something about when you meditate first and you want a quiet place, I'm going to go to a cave and be quiet. And Sometimes people complain in here because they hear the hiss of the hinges of the doors when they open. They're saying, oh my God, it's supposed to be really silent. Somebody came in late, you know. <laughs> Try and go meditate in India or Burma or places where we've practiced where, you know, there's construction site over here and Hindi film music over there and a big wedding taking place. And you just realize you're in the middle of life. So when you start to sense that the comets come in and that the music of the spheres is its own music and not the way you think it's supposed to be, it starts to change you. Now, I've just come back from traveling in Indonesia. I was in Bali, which is quite wonderful, and then went to this great temple in Borobudur. Um, And in Bali, uh, the, the, the guide who took us around, this friend who'd married a Balinese prince 30 years ago and was showing us really remarkable trance dances and healers and things. And anyway, she took us to this one village where there was a trance dance and a, a fire walk where in the middle of it they built this fire of coconut husks and several men who were in a trance went out and walked across the fire and kicked these coconut husks up and stuff. And they also did a remarkable dance. And it was really the village's thing to do and we were just participants that she brought us there to see Part of it was it was a dance of good and evil or of the destruction and the benevolent forces working themselves out ritually so that the village could be at peace. I mean, I think, you know, American politics is basically ritualized warfare. It is. Seriously. You know, only we don't have our knights and things and go joust in Washington, but people are, are battling in a ritual way in politics. So this is the village's way of coming to peace with that periodically. So it was very moving and it's dark out and all these torches and people chanting and doing this. And I look at it and at one point I thought, well, they're walking on fire. 
that's really cool. Maybe I'll do it. So I get up, and there's only a few. I was just with a few friends. And um, the, the uh, poem from Ryokan, the beloved Japanese poet, he says, last year a foolish monk, this year no change. Right? So, <laughs> so I get up, and I think... And I made a mistake. I'll tell you the mistake. I think, well, that's fantastic. Maybe I'll try firewalking. And so I just brush in the middle and I start walking on the coals and kicking the, you know, flaming coconut husks around and so forth. And then pretty soon, ow, 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 ow. You know, and these guys are like farmers who have very thick soles. And, and, and my lily feet have never been out of a sock except to touch you know, the soft carpet somewhere. Ow, 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 ow. Blisters for some days. I'll tell you, I, did, I burnt my feet. Um, and, of course, the villagers, because then I was really dancing. They thought that was really funny. It was like, oh, okay, that's what you're talking about. But the big, the foolish thing, I mean, doing it was, of course, foolish, but the real foolish thing was I didn't ask anybody how to do it. And later I was told that they practice and that there's a training, you know, and that there's a way of moving through the fire, not just centering yourself, but also ways that you move. And so when I read this passage from the Buddha of live in joy, even among the sick or the troubled or in the troubles of the world, um, it sounds beautiful, and it is, and it's, it's possible for us, but it's also why we do such things as meditation practice. Because you first sit down and your mind is all over the place and worries and fears and plans and, you know, the inner waterfall and the unfinished business of things that you haven't tended to shows themselves or your body tension and so forth. And you learn through the practice how to make space, how to be uh, generous to yourself, how to be forgiving to those people that come in your mind that you have grudges about that Sylvia talked to talked about, and you start to realize that there is both the possibility, the seed of awakening in you, um, and there also is the support of learning how to do it, um, which I learned in that village um, <laughs> by not doing it right, you know, which is, of course, how one learns. A couple more things. Um, also went to this amazing temple at Borobudur, which is the largest Buddhist single Buddhist temple in the world, and it's got layers and layers. It's like the Kala Chakra Mandala that uh, the Dalai Lama was teaching in, uh, in Washington. It's, I don't know, a quarter of a mile on the side, and you walk around, and it has all these stone friezes. It was the high technology of the day. And each layer that you walk up, if you do all the circumambulations, you go several miles before you get to the top. You go around it three times. Each layer has these teachings on it. And the lowest layers, the bottom, are the layer of unconscious karma, of heavens and hells and making suffering and making happiness and pleasure, but people who really don't understand the laws of what makes happiness. So there's, not, there, there's a lack of generosity or a lack of integrity or lack of truthfulness, and then the suffering that comes from it, the sort of teaching stories. And then you go up through the stories of the practices of, integrity and generosity and the story of the Buddha and the stories of these great sages and bodhisattvas and you get to the very top and it is like the music of the spheres. Finally, after all these images, there are no statues or images of bodhisattvas or Buddhas at the top of this mountain. There's a beautiful sphere of the, um, kind of, a, of, of the 
chedi or the stupa at the top. And then around it are these bell-shaped stupas. And if you look inside through these grids, you can see kind of secretly inside that there's a Buddha in each one. But normally you don't see them, which is to say that there's a Buddha hidden in every grain of sand and in every human being and in every place you look. And the top of it is like attaining nirvana. Um, you go through all these layers and finally you come to the place that's formless, that's the music of the spheres. And I felt so happy up there. It was really beautiful. And then all these school kids came and were taking pictures. <laughs> and first, you know, I thought that's sort of trivial or people were taking their pictures up there. And then I realized, no, no, they want to remember nirvana. They want to remember that they made it to the top, too. And then you go back down to the world, but you remember that you've been there. And you realize that the whole cosmos now can be seen uh, from the place of centeredness, from the place of peace, from the place of joy or well-being. And that this whole circumambulation, this whole pilgrimage, which has been there for thousands of years, is a place for people to come and remember what's possible for themselves. Um, one more little story. Um, also went to a Balinese village that was uh, holding a cremation and a funeral with some Balinese friends. And people are so open there, and they said, come in the house, and they welcomed us, and there's some hundreds of people there for this. And um, at the funeral, um, the cremation, it was an older woman who died, and her body was laying out there, and there were people playing music, and they were dancing to the gods and kind of making a celebration. And then 100 or 200 people came and walked by, her body and placed on her body offerings, prayers, poems, flowers, covered her body with these beautiful things. So here was the corpse lying, and everybody came and, and, and made or created out of bamboo or paper or prayers and just filled her body with these prayers for her spirit. And then they wrapped her up. Oh, they bathed her. They bathed her before that. They bathed her. And her daughter washed her feet. Her daughter, Balinese, have this long hair that they put up in buns. Her daughter took down her hair with this big silver clip in her hair and then used her hair to wash her mother's feet. And it was the most moving thing. It was so beautiful as a kind of honoring of her mother. Then they put all these blessings on. People were singing and chanting while they did it. They wrapped her up in this white, beautiful white shroud and then some of the elders of the village, six or eight of them, picked her body up. And all of her descendants, they made a little kind of tunnel or passage. And all of her descendants walked underneath her body. They ducked down and they walked under her body as if to thank her for giving birth to them and their children and their grandchildren and so forth. It was a really amazing thing to watch. And they were happy. Um, she was an older woman. She lived a very full life. They had grieved some. But then as one of the people, I, I said, you know, this doesn't feel like a Western funeral where everybody's weeping and grieving and gnashing their teeth. And, and she looked at me and she said, you believe in only one life? You know, that was her question. You know, we know she'll be back. <laughs> we're just sending her off. We're giving a fabulous party and we're sending her off and we'll see her again soon. And that was really the spirit that they did it. But more than that, whether it was being at the Temple of Borobudur or in Shark Cathedral or being at this really astonishing kind of funeral ritual, 
They were all places to remind us of the sacred dance, to remind us that it's possible in the midst of birth and death, in the midst of the tragedies of Rwanda or the difficulties of your life um, and of the world, that it's also possible to make prayers, to make offerings, to see from the top of the mountain the perspective of the dance of joy and sorrow and birth and death and become like the Buddha yourself, to become one who carries compassion and peace. And it's really what we're trying to do here in the trainings and things that we offer, to make a place like Borobudur that when people come in, they are reminded of who they really are, that you're reminded of who you really are. And when you see people leave residential retreats, they've been here a week or 10 days or so forth, they are changed. Their faces, we call it the Vipassana facelift, basically. (laughs) Their faces look really clear. Their bodies are relaxed. They're walking. There's a certain sense of ease and grace and dignity. Um, It's because they've had time to come back to themselves in a world that pulls us from ourselves. So these are some thoughts to add to what you said, (laughs) Sylvia. And I tossed it back over to you. You know, when you were listening, I had, you know, I thought, oh, I'll talk about this, I'll talk about that, I'll talk about this. But you're onto something else, I'll talk about that. So I have about ten things to say, maybe I'll say one or two of them. But I was really, really wanted to say something about the epiphenomenon of uh, not only the stories that you told, but listening to you talk, uh, which is such a pleasure, and listening to everybody enjoying what you're saying. And I'm thinking about, before you were talking about how people meditate and they are silent, bring their attention to what's their experience and how, in fact, their mind relaxes and it opens up and it sees broader, broader perspectives of what's the truth. I think that the, that the, uh, the operative part is the mind relaxes, it opens up and it sees more and more of the truth. And it does it sometimes because one is sitting quietly in a serene kind of a place. And sometimes because you're listening to wonderful stories. So I'm thinking about, I want to put in a plug for all the ways of practicing. When you went back before and you said, about you're going to walk on coals, you have to practice. If you're going to live a life, you have to practice. And that one of the things, one of the other modalities of practice is listening to, listening to stories that pick up your mind so that it might accidentally open. And then you have a, you could, you could forget your, uh, not forget what, you know what it is? It's not forget the difficulties that are currently in your life. I actually see this always quite spaciously. It's that your mind gets large enough so that the difficulties are still there, but the whole rest of the life is there. The beauty and the amazement and the just uh, sometimes the funniness of it. He um, said something that reminded me of, well... <laughs> I better pull it together before I tell it, because it was such a funny moment in the Kala Chakra. Um, let me see if I can do this in a, in a way that you'll imagine it. So here's 14,000 people uh, sitting really uh, reverentially listening to His Holiness, because he's, he is saying the same thing, but in a wonderful way, again and again and again. You get there, by the way, it starts very early in the morning. He and the monks are out there at 7 o'clock in the morning. People don't all come at 7. They come a little bit later. But it's a three-hour prayer service with bells and gongs and horns and reading those, the, 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 those kind of liturgical books that they read and a whole platform full of 
maybe a hundred monks. His Holiness does not sit up on his big throne during that time. He sits amongst the monks, mm. and you, you sometimes you have to look around to see where he is, actually, which I remarked on like very much. And we all came, and we don't know that liturgy, but you sit there anyway, and you listen to it, and it just it's a it's a practice sitting and listening to it, and it just makes you feel good and feel relaxed, and it, and people are mostly quiet. They're not completely silent. Your friends come in, tell them hello, you give them a hug, you say, did you sleep well? But then they're keeping on, keeping on, keeping on. But actually, tremendous reverential feeling there. And people very, very nice to each other, thoughtful all over the place. It was full of a lot, a lot of Tibetan monks in beautiful golden robes. There were a lot, a lot, a lot of Tibetan lay people in Tibetan clothing, a lot of them with babies, because they bring them like to see the Pope or something, you bring your baby. So they, they came from far distances when you talked to them. You met them online in the concession stands or in the restrooms. They came from far distances with their whole family to, to get to be in the same room with the Dalai Lama. And then at one point, and everybody always has to come through, every single go out and come in means the Secret Service, so you have to come and put your bags through the bag scan and have your ticket and sit in exactly your same seat as before. But all these people, tremendously orderly, in, out, quiet. And then one day, just before they began the actual initiation, as we're sitting in the afternoon, I see that uh, some some helpers, coordinators of the event, have brought in a tremendous pile of red strings, which they put on the table in front of the platform with all the monks on it, red strings that this is one of, and another tremendous pile of cushy grass. It's like thistle grass. Actually, two piles, long cushy grass, and short cushy grass because this particular initiation requires that everybody have one of each and a string. So I was thinking to myself, I wonder how they're going to pass that out here in this center. Probably they'll bring some to each section and then there'll be section monitors to pass it out or something. And in fact, they didn't do that. I think when they evaluate it afterwards, they'll say, next time we do this, we'll do it that way. They didn't do that. I saw at some point some people come in and scoop up these big haystacks of grass and take them out of the main room, along with the red strings. And then we heard, everybody heard the same instructions about, on your way out of the... Uh, Verizon Center, when you leave now, be sure to pick up a red string and one each, the short and the long of the cushy grass. So we start to leave, you know, then see you tomorrow, we start to leave, and all of a sudden, it was not disorderly, and I wouldn't call it a stampede in any way, but all of a sudden, all these slow-moving people we're climbing the stairs with alacrity and getting out into this main hallway around, you can imagine, with the concession stands all around. All of a sudden, everybody's out there at the same time. With everybody out there, you can't see where the monitors are giving out the stuff. And people are really 
eagerly looking. I wouldn't say rushing around. I wouldn't say at all that it was ever out of order. But there was definitely a feeling. And it was funny because people kept saying, where's the grass? Did you see the people with the grass? Where's the grass? Where's... I saw a person with grass. I thought, this is really like a rock concert. <laughs> <laughs> Finally, I, there were too many people out in the hallway, and some voice came on the loudspeaker and said, "Everybody, go home now. When you come back tomorrow." <laughs> so when you came back the next day, you got it. But it was very—it was both an endearing moment. It was funny. It was wonderful to see that in all these people, serene, relaxed, everything okay. Suddenly, where's the grass? Where's the person with the grass? I'm supposed to have a dream about that grass. I have to take it home and put it under my pillow. It was funny to see. You know, lust arises in people. It just and, and does. And chaos. You know, this, this uh, African shaman friend of mine, Maladoma Somme, he, he li- likes to say that at the beginning of genuine rituals, there is often some chaos, which is a good thing, kind of good news, because it means that the the orderly way things are is starting to break apart so something new can happen. Yeah. And so chaos and is, know, is a part a, of it. I was never worried. Do you remember we were on a train, train station in Delhi 15, 20 years ago going to that conference and it was, it was so, so crowded with people. I remember that you, and I couldn't see anything because everybody was way up. I was really holding on to somebody's yeah, We were on our belts. way up to go see the Dalai Lama. I was or... holding on to Steve Smith's belt straps because I couldn't see where to go. And you leaned over to me and you said, welcome to India. But the thing about it was that I was never feeling menaced there. I wasn't feeling jeopardized. In the Verizon Center, I was never worried about it. I thought it was the funniest thing that all these very well-contained people suddenly were on a a mission to get their string. So I have my string. I had the grass I put under my pillow. Uh, I had one more thing to say about practice on a whole other topic. Because it will bring us back to where we began before. I learned something about Zen last weekend. I, I heard uh, Joan Sutherland teaching. I was at a conference uh, where there were various speakers, and I was representing the Theravada tradition. And I heard some Tibetan Buddhists teach. It's wonderful to hear other people in other traditions. Everybody says the same thing, but they just say it differently. And Z- Joan Sutherland's a... Um, a Zen teacher, and she's particularly a teacher in the Rinzai tradition, and they teach koans. And I think if I were perfectly honest, I would. I, sometimes I say I didn't have the opportunity ever to do that. I think I avoided it because I was afraid that I wouldn't know the answer. I don't like to take tests where I don't know the answer. It's bad for my morale. So it's humiliating to me, actually. And my friends who have come through Rinzai Zen don't have that problem feeling humiliated. It's not a big deal for them. Anyway, Joan was teaching uh, uh, koans, which are little riddles, kind of. And you say them and say them and say them. There's kind of mind-opening riddles because they don't have an answer or they challenge the normal mind. And again, like listening to a good Dharma talk or laughing or listening to his holiness, your mind opens and suddenly you just see things that you didn't see before. Like everybody is just the way they are because they couldn't be otherwise, which is a huge, liberating thing to know and to remember. So here's Joan taught one, two, three koans. The fourth 
she said, okay, this is the hardest koan of all. And I just, I thought it was so great. I thought I wanted to tell you, so I want to tell you before the evening is out, because this is a very big practice. She said, this is the really hardest of practice. You say this, get behind this statement. There is nothing I dislike. That's it. That's it. So I, don't, I can't read 400 people's minds at one time. But did your mind say, ah? <laughs> What's that about? There's plenty of things I dislike. Like when Jack said before, it's attachment to preferences. But there's nothing I dislike. I'll tell you an answer that I have because we're coming out of time. So I think about there are plenty of things that if I could change, I would. And there are plenty of things that I wouldn't go, you know, I wouldn't want to be with or given an option I wouldn't spend time with or do. But disliking, I think, has that has a pushing out of the mind feeling like, Ur. and I don't want to push anything out of my mind. I want to have a mind that's big enough to hold everything in it so that nothing has to get pushed. Live in joy in the midst of sorrow. Live in health, live in delight. That's what we're teaching, that mind. And all the techniques of the Zen and this and that and <coughs> cushy grass and red strings and listening to Dharma talks and sitting and bringing your attention to the moment, they are all techniques designed one way or another to open the mind. Trungpa Rinpoche used to say that liberation was an accident and uh, practice made you accident prone. <laughs> yeah. Um, there, there's a kind of question that comes <clears throat> when you say that, that koan about... What, what, repeat the koan one more time. <laughs> there's nothing I dislike. There's nothing I dislike. Let none despise another. Let none deceive another or despise any being. Sure. For any reason. Or, you know, the great way is not difficult for mm-hmm. those who, are, who have no preferences. Um, and that is that um, people get concerned that if there's nothing I dislike or if I don't have, I'm not attached to preferences, then what about war? What about racism? What about people who are hungry? What about injustice and things that we need to tend to? Um, and it's extremely important to not to say it because it's not a philosophy, but for you to explore and sense in yourself that when the mind gets a bit quieter, when the heart softens and opens with compassion or loving kindness or forgiveness, instead of withdrawing from the world, this isn't really at all about indifference or withdrawing from the world, you actually feel that it is your world, that you're here, that you're open to this world with its beautiful things and its terrible things, and what comes out of you naturally is your way to respond, is your gift, is your caring. Somebody's hungry, you feed them. Somebody fell down, you help them up, not because you're a good person or you're supposed to, but because you're present and alive and you're not so self-involved, so frightened or so caught up, so that you can respond. So it turns out that by freeing the heart and mind in this way, you actually free yourself to go back down the mountain, if you will, from that beautiful stupa, from the realm of nirvana, 
um, to go back down the mountain and bring the blessings of a peaceful and loving heart back to the world without regret. And I don't even regret that I ran into the fire. <laughs> afterward, even though, oh, 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 it hurt, and where's the water, and, you know, and so forth, I thought, this is going to be a good story. Yeah. Right? <laughs> you know, I knew that. I, th- I, th- I think the, whole, the, the, you know, the part of the forgiving is to not give oneself a bad time for anything. You know, we, we, we really don't mean to hurt ourselves or anybody else. And I just, I know we have to close, but I always think what, that, just to underscore what you just said, my father, uh, who, when, my father who, if he had lived, would be 100 years old this year, uh, lived nearby me for the last years of his life and would come always and listen to me teach and always loved what I said until I said something like, no enemies at all, or that anger, you know, really don't need to dwell in anger. And we'd leave after I'd given the talk, and he wouldn't say anything in class. And as soon as we got in the car, he'd say, that was great, so, but uh, I have one problem with what you said. He said, I, he was a tremendously involved social activist. He said, I need my anger. I need my anger to keep me fueled out to go out there and make a difference. And I said, listen, Dad, I don't think you need it to keep you fueled up. I think you need to have the capacity to have anger arise, we all do, in order to point you to the fact that there is injustice in the world and you have to do something about it, that you want to do something about it, that you're motivated to do something. So it's like a, a wake-me-up. It says, okay, whoa, look what you have to do, Harry. And then you do it. You don't have to keep yourself all riled up because you'll do it better if your mind is not clouded with antipathy and anger at the people who cause the problems and anger at the people who are behind the problems. If your whole mind and heart are available to you, you will be able to approach everybody and make a difference because you will be like a a soothing element in the situation. I think people don't quite get why they fall in love so much with the Dalai Lama when they're in a room with him. But they cry when he leaves places just from being with him. And what I think they cry about is that message he gets about, gives about everybody is the fruit of their own karma. They couldn't be different. Everybody suffers in relation to their own, their own uh, ignorance. Uh, when you realize that, you have nothing but compassion for all beings. And you listen to those teachings and you know that that's alive in him, that lives in him. And it's so moving that everybody's mind just and falls in love with him and with themselves, I think, because you begin to sense that potential in yourself and think about how extraordinary it is to be a human being. We could actually do this in this very life, in this very mind, in this very body, in this very world. And I hope we do. So I, I said to Sylvia, we were talking about teaching together tonight because we'd done this, we did this very beautiful and really quite inspiring beginning of our capital campaign yesterday together and raised almost $200,000 in one in a few hours of people pledging um, $1,000 apiece, which is more than most people had ever given in their life. But as Sylvia says, over three years, it's 87 cents a day, and you build a temple, and what a magnificent thing to do. 
Um, and if you're interested, there's information out there, and it would be wonderful to have other people join Sylvia's Sangha of thousands of Buddhas. Um, but I said, we're not going to do a lot of fundraising tonight because this is really a teaching class and a Dharma class. Um, and it's been such a pleasure listen to your stories and mm -hmm. be there with you in the Dalai Lama. Um, uh, and I just want to say that we are starting this building um, and to whatever extent you feel connected with this place. Some of you are quite new. We welcome you. You don't have to give anything. Just come and walk the land and sit and be nourished in whatever way you can. But those of you who feel inspired or touched in some way, um, somebody said, well, you know, it's, it's some millions of dollars. Isn't that, isn't that like a lot of money given all the problems in the world? And I, I thought about it and I said, you know, if we can build 100,000 shopping centers in America, we can probably build a few places of peace. Um, and out of this practice and the training that we do has come mindfulness-based stress reduction in a thousand different hospitals and clinics and, and the curriculum of social and emotional learning based on mindfulness that's in thousands of school systems. And we have retreats for lawyers and physicians and healers and all kinds of things like that. But mostly just to have places in our community where people can come and remember who you really are and remember your own Buddha nature and what's possible, your life of compassion and loving kindness and, and, uh, and wisdom that is possible for you. And it's beautiful and possible for the world. So to whatever extent you feel moved or want to find out more, we invite you to do that. Um, but mostly we're just happy to be here together and to talk about teachings that we love and to share the stillness of the meditation. And um, I have one more idea. If when you're leaving, it's like the cushy grass and everybody says, where's the paper, where's the literature, where's the stuff, and it's not enough, it's not convenient and you have to go to your car to get all the materials for reading or signing up, you can go online because as of day before yesterday, there's a fabulous new website that people have worked so hard on getting up and it's beautiful. Look at it. It's called um, thousandsofbuddhas.org, www.thousandsofbuddhas.org. And it's a great website, soon to be even more full of material, like little teaching videos. And But now it will tell you all about everything that you need to know about this particular fund drive, plus click here to donate, to join. So I... Uh, I hope you'll, you'll look at it and really take it to heart. So let's end with a very simple chant and then go out into the summer evening. In India, when you meet someone, the common greeting is to put your hands together and say namaste, which means I honor the divine within you. I see who you really are. I see that Buddha nature, that spirit. And the root of the word namaste um, in Sanskrit or Pali is the word namo, which means to pay respects to or to bow to. And so I'd like us simply to chant namo nine times. And as you do, you can feel what you're drawn to bow to. It might be just to the fact that you came and sat and quieted yourself down and listened to your own heart tonight. Or it might be that you want to bow to some intention that you carry um, in your life or at this time for yourself or for others, 
Or maybe you think of someone you love or someone who's in difficulty you want to bow to or somebody who's doing something great in the world or whatever inspires you or the Dalai Lama or whatever touches your heart. And we'll chant nine times um, and then we'll go out into this beautiful summer night. Na of goodness today. Once more and hold it. stillness and whatever blessings and compassion and awakening that has touched you back to your family and friends and community for a long time. Thank you. Good night. Mm-hmm.